Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 8 and we continue Christ's message in the temple, which takes us then to verse 12 and we will begin there. But first, The story of the elect of God in the Old Testament is that they were enslaved in bondage and helpless. The taskmasters were cruel, heartless. God raised up a deliverer and encouraged the hearts of the people, and they came out of Egypt headed to a land none of them had seen, a land of promise, the promised land. It was everything that a nation of people could hope for in those days. And the Lord graciously provided for them. They didn't deserve it. But God had entered into a covenant with them, had called them to himself and provided graciously and divinely for them. As they traveled, they needed sustenance. He provided manna, bread from heaven. Then they needed water. Moses struck the rock and water came and followed them all the way. To the promised land. They had bread. They had water. But they were afraid of the darkness. And needed light. In the wilderness. Where there was no light. And so God. Himself. Came to be for them a pillar of fire that both lighted their way and protected them from any enemy that might try to attack them as they made their way to the promised land. Bread, water, light. Finally, they came to the Jordan River And just like they had crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, they crossed the river on dry ground. The first place was Jericho. It was a simple instruction. March around it seven times. That was a declaration then that their wilderness journey was over. And they had come to the promised land. Redeemed out of Egypt. Guided through the wilderness. Brought to the promised land. We have been studying how Christ is teaching the people during the Feast of Tabernacles. 
He is about six months here from the cross. It started back a couple of uh, chapters earlier where he was at the pinnacle of his ministry and he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. That would have been maybe a crowd of 20,000 or so, maybe more. And with a little boy's lunch, he fed them all that they could want. And there was enough left over so that the disciples could carry it with them. It was such a magnificent miracle that the word spread quickly and people came from everywhere. They got in their boats and they tried to catch up and keep up with Jesus. And then to this immense crowd, Jesus preached to them and said to them, I'm the bread of life. Bread. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. We'll commemorate that, God willing, later today. If you don't feed on the essence of who I am, you cannot live. Most of the people of that huge crowd left him. People have always had a problem with the plain truth from heaven that there's only one way to be saved and there's no other way. There's no alternative route to heaven. There's not a substitute savior. There's only one way. And of course, it's God's way. Now, on into the week, they came to the great day, the last day. Every day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the people would bring branches from trees and they would they would commemorate, of course, they lived in tents made from branches to commemorate how God cared for them in their trek through the wilderness. And then at a particular time every day, they came in worship, throngs, massive multitudes of people. They brought these branches and they would cover the altar and the high priest would bring a golden pitcher of water and he would pour it on the altar not just to commemorate how God cared for them, but how God gave them water. And so it was a commemoration of how this water had followed them from that rock all the way. And then Jesus preached, I'm that water, living water. You take of this water and from your belly shall flow fountains of living water. And you will become a channel of what you have believed in. So Christ is the bread and he is the water. Which brings us to the third and final part of the teaching of Christ. And it's, it was obviously structured around the illustration of those things that happened in their worship during the week of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you can't read the writing. I never know when I put these things up if you can read it or not. As a matter of fact, I have to walk over here to see it myself. 
That is a likeness of the temple, Herod's temple, like the one Jesus walked in and taught in. Let's see. Yeah. There it is. Now, if you see here, you go through this, all of this outside part of the court of the Gentiles. You could be anybody and hang out there. But you had to be a, an Israelite, a Jew, to go through here to get into this part. And this is the court of women. Now, men and women who were Jewish could come in here or appropriately accepted proselytes. But then only men and priests could pass from there, and that's where you'd make a, a sacrifice, back where the priests would be, and then the holy place, and then the holy of holies. All right, so we're talking about the court of women here. Now those columns, those colonnades right there, were markers for where people could give money. That's the treasury. So there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles, like horns of plenty or something. And people would give their offering into those trumpet openings and we'd go down somewhere. The first, um, let's see, there were 13 of them. The first seven, I think, were for designated offerings, each of the first Seven, I think, offering horns were for specific ministries that were provided for in the temple. The upkeep of this or to provide material for this and so. But then eight through 13 was the general fund. That's how we'd say it. You just gave a general offering in those, those horns eight through 13. We're told that 6,000 people could crowd into the court of women. So this was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three feasts required for men over the age of 30, 30 and older uh, to, to attend. So obviously the city is full of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and the court of women would as well have had thousands of people. It was there, we learn in this passage, it was here in the court of women, just outside and beside the treasury, where Jesus was doing his teaching here that we're studying. This is where Jesus was. Now it's interesting because no Gentile could go in there unless he was a proselyte. Court of the Gentiles outside, this is a court of women. So Jewish men and women and proselytes could listen to the teaching of Jesus, because of his fame, he obviously would have drawn a large crowd. So he has taught the people. And this is my experience. I was in Egypt, enslaved. And I was redeemed. I was saved by grace. And nothing could stand in my way. And even in the wilderness of life, the Lord has provided for me. And Jesus has said to me, I'm your bread. I'm your water. 
And this is his teaching to the people then. I was there. I was the one who provided it. It illustrated who I am. And finally, this third illustration. So we have an idea now. Thousands of people listening as they brought their offerings and listened to Jesus as he taught about the only way to be saved. Now that carries us then to verse 12 in chapter 8. So Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. The. It's, it's a definite article. He's the only one. I am the light of the world. Tophos, the light. There's not another The world is in darkness and in sin. The world is fallen. Some infinitely glorious day. At the end of the thousand years. The earth. Will be destroyed. The creation of God cleansed by fire. And there will be a new heaven. And a new earth. Presently, it is in darkness. You don't have to teach children how to be good or how to be good. You don't have to teach them to be bad. They already know how to be bad. You have to teach them how to be good. In the due course of time, every man-made institution, and sadly, even in some cases, the church, and it's readily admitted in the New Testament, will, will collapse into sin Because of this present world, this present age. We have the New Testament, as a matter of fact. We have the Gospels and we have the Acts. But then we have the Epistles. And the churches were written to address certain issues. 1 Corinthians especially was written because they were bad people. They were sinful. Five of the seven churches of the Revelation came under condemnation. Here's what I'm saying. We have to be careful and walk circumspectly, even those of us who are in Christ, because the world is so evil and strong. And thank God for the Holy Spirit in our lives, otherwise we couldn't survive at all. So we're wandering through this wilderness, a world filled with darkness. Sooner or later, sooner or later, All governments in the world fall into darkness. All all academic institutions fall into darkness. It's it's across the hill. You can see it. Churches have to be constantly aware. We have to constantly maintain our focus on the precious word of God so that no corner of who we are, no whit or bit of who we are can ever allow darkness to come in. We must constantly shine this this light that dispels the darkness. But we need it in our lives, absolutely. We have to walk 
in the light. Yes, we need bread. We need the essence of Christ to save us. We need the, the living water of Christ, which is the word to cleanse us. And we need the light to show us the way and to give us strength. Now here is Christ touching on the third and final part of his teaching. I am the light of the world. Everyone who was Jewish enough to come and worship in a required feast would have known the writings of Isaiah regarding the Messiah. There are, I don't know, four or five especially messianic chapters in Isaiah. The two in focus here would be Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 42, Yahweh says of the Messiah, I will appoint you as a light to the nations. And then in Isaiah 49, he says, I will give you as a light to the world. Messiah comes, and when Messiah comes, he is light. All that he says dispels darkness. Bread, water, light. In all three cases, the Pharisees and everybody else knew that he was telling the people that he is the Christ, the Messiah. I am the light of the world. The one following me shall never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of light, uh, the light of life following me. Now that's the pillar of fire. The pillar of fire would swing around and would lead the people where they needed to go in their trip through the wilderness, in their journey of life, headed having come out of slavery and toward the promised land, marching through this life. Follow me. I'm the pillar of fire. I'm the light. You'll have life if you follow me. You'll never walk in the darkness. If you follow me, you'll have the light of life. Now what's the other side of that coin? If you don't, you won't. Therefore, the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness concerning yourself. Your testimony is not true. John the Baptist has testified of who Christ is, of who Jesus is. He spent the rest of his ministry prior to his death telling his disciples to follow Jesus. Christ the Father has borne witness through the miracles. We've seen this earlier in our study. The Father bore witness to the Son by the miracles. The witnesses to the power and person of Christ are replete and cannot be denied. But I'll tell you this, a reprobate mind will never get enough proof as to who the Christ of God is. 
I learned early not to spend too much time casting my pearls before swine. You preach the word of God and there is no inflection in my voice. There is no fist of mine strong enough to pound a pulpit. And there is no volume that I can speak with loud enough to do more to a person's heart than what the blessed word of God can do. You just preach it and teach it and leave it up to God. So then the Pharisees are saying, ah, you're just talking about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Well, there are a lot of people says, you know, they'll say, you know, um, doesn't matter what you say about Jesus. If you, if you get, if you get too far gone out of the human realm, I'm just not going to believe it's not true. That's okay. Well, so what? I can't, it's not okay, but I'll do what I can do. It's because there was no higher witness, claimant. No, no one had a higher office walking the earth than Christ. So who else except the Christ of God who had performed miracles could make the testimony? But they're not going to take it. They're not going to accept it. Your testimony. Are you just talking about yourself? Yeah. Your testimony is not true. Well, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I'm bearing witness concerning myself, my testimony is true because... I am the eternal son of God. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Most of the people don't know that in the world. Most people don't know where you came from and don't know where you're going. That's kind of bad. It's not kind of bad. It's bad. Christ said, I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know. You do not know where I came from and you don't know where I'm going. You're in darkness and confusion. You see, if you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe the word of God, you don't believe the son of God, you don't, you don't give to him the highest accolades and praise and position and collapse before him in faith. If you don't do that, there's no hope for you. There's nothing left. Nothing. You don't know me. You don't know the Father and the heaven from whence I came, and you don't know the Father and the heaven to where I go. You don't know anything spiritual. You're of the flesh. You judge according to the flesh. I can look at the world today And I can consider the darkness that's falling in every corner across every man-made institution and organization. And I don't have to run some sort of data research To tell you what I know spiritually. Because the world is collapsing 
at a dizzying pace into sin and darkness around the world at every level within every organization. And I loathe to say and hurt to say even within the church, so-called. And we were warned, we were told that I can tell you spiritually, I can appraise what's about to happen. Sin cannot reign supreme. The time will come. It will be judged. So then, these guys are like most everybody else in the world. They just judge by what they see and what they can empirically test. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I judge, my judgment is true. Because I am not alone. But I and the Father, having sent me, is the one with me. I and the Father are together. Now you have a law. And also in your law, now he stands there as God in the flesh. You understand this? This is God. God the Son. The law only applies to fallen man. God doesn't need a law. God gives the law to show his people that we are sinners and that we have fallen short of the divine standard. But you cannot apply the law to God. I told you some time back how they they used to, the rabbis used to argue over whether or not on a Sabbath God was working because the sun was shining, the wind was blowing, the crops were growing, and oh God, he's, he's working on the Sabbath. <laughs> That's kind of a stupid thing. And so they came up with a set of man-made rules to excuse God from working on the Sabbath. This is why Jesus said, this is your law. It doesn't apply to God. Your law, it's been written that the testimony of two men is true. I think that's in Deuteronomy 19. I am the one bearing witness concerning myself and the father who sent me bears witness concerning me. Here's what Jesus says. Okay, I'll go along with you. I'll tell you that I'm the Christ. I'll tell you that I'm the bread from heaven. I'll tell you that I'm the living water. I'll tell you that I'm the light of life. And that is my testimony. And it stands because of who I am. But there is another one who bears witness and it is my father. Look at the miracles. Look at the crowds. How would these people be interested in me at all? If not for the fact that as surely as I testify about myself, my father is testifying about me as well. So I'll play along with your law. There are two of us. You see, to have two witnesses means that we don't really think people tell the truth. That's what it means. We just figure everybody's a liar. That's what the Bible says about everybody. All men are liars. That's what the Bible says. We just... We just we, can, we lie and we can't help ourselves. 
We, <laughs> we lie and sometimes don't even know we're lying. It's because we didn't keep our mouth shut, but we just lie. We are not, I am not absolute truth, nor are you. Only God. So it was made for liars, but Christ said, okay, I'll go along with you. There are two witnesses, me and my father. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Here we go again. They've already done this thing about, well, we know Joseph, your father. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. Now, this is supposed to be the, the Judaism, the leaders of Judaism. This is supposed to be the religion of the true and living God on planet earth. And they don't know him. They don't know God. You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have also known my father. These words he spoke in the treasury. We talked about that earlier. Teaching in the temple. And no one seized him for his hour had not yet come. Not until the next Passover, the divinely appointed time for the Lamb of God to offer himself, for God to be pleased to bruise him. Not until then can anyone do anything about it. No one seized him for his hour had not yet come. Then again, he said to them, and he's already said this earlier, a while ago, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you are not able to come. That's the most horrible thing that could be said about somebody. You cannot have Jesus. <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Jesus says, you'll want me. But you won't have me. You will seek me, but you'll never find me. The Bible says, call on the Lord while he is near. Seek him while he may be found. They could not be saved. Why? Because they would not be enabled to come to him, to die in their sins. This is a good segue for us to go right into our Lord's Supper. <laughs> 